Could you um, squeeze together, make as much room as you can for folks? Uh, there's a little bit of room up here in the front. If you uh, kind of squeeze in and look back at a deacon and tell him there's a little bit of space by you. Fellas, we may need to put some on the side over there. We are uh, sort of jumping into the middle of a book. Um, We're going to come back and take a quick look at some other pieces of it. But we're jumping into the middle of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is not one of those stopping places for most Christians. We don't spend a lot of time saying, hey, you know the book that I want to go read. I want to go read Nehemiah again. Most of us aren't really spending a lot of time here. It's a good book, though. It's one worth reading. It's, it's sort of the capstone on the historical uh, uh, books of Judaism. It's the, it's the last in the history of Judaism that we have in the scriptures. It's the Old Testament's last statement about his, how Israel ended up where they were. When we find Jesus coming 400 years later in the New Testament, you have, a, you have a well-established country, but this is how it got reestablished after its many difficulties. But as we jump into the middle of Nehemiah, we're going to be in chapter 8. And if you'd like to, to grab a Bible, look in your Bible if you brought one, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8. There will be a few passages on the, on the uh, board this morning, or on the screen this morning, I'll be sharing with you. But the first passage I want to share with you isn't actually part of the, the uh, book of Nehemiah, but it's going to be re- really relevant to what we have to talk about today. It's Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Perhaps you remember this one. It's, uh, it's where the scriptures say this about Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame And has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It's kind of a weird statement, isn't it? How did Jesus deal with the cross? Well, he was looking beyond the cross for a joy that was to come. And I want to to read one more, and then we'll dive in a little bit more. This is from John chapter 15, beginning at verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you, and abide Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. So Jesus speaks of this joy that he has, that miraculously took him from from that moment of of desperation at the cross and pre-cross in Gethsemane to a moment where he could face whatever came because he was looking beyond the cross at a joy set before him. He, there was a joy in Jesus that allowed him to endure a very difficult thing. The passage that we're going to focus in on today as we move through this is, the, is, is in the title, The Joy of the Lord is Your Strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. How many of you have jumped off a high rock or a cliff into the water? Raise your hand if you've done that. Okay, how many of you were scared? How many of you were just crazy that way? (laughs) There's that moment. I don't do a lot of this because I'm actually afraid of heights. I'm not a big fan of being up really high. freaks me out a little bit. Um, When my brother ran over to the side of the the crater lake to see what was going on, he went running out of the car, ran over to the lake to see what was there. And as he ran toward the edge, I got scared for him. 
And as he stopped at the edge and looked down, I ran over behind him and I stopped about 25 feet away and then I crept over and then I got about 15, 10 or 15 feet away and then I sat down and I scooted along the rock all the way over to the edge where I could see what was going on over there because it just freaks me out, that whole falling off, not stopping till the end and that. It's not the falling that kills you. It's the sudden stop at the bottom. And gravity, as far as we know, has never actually, is, is a law that's never actually been broken. Right? You don't break it. It breaks you. So I can remember those few times, kind of with a lot of uh, mixed emotions when I faced the, the edge, standing on the edge. It doesn't have to be that high for me. About 15, 20 feet, and I'm starting to get a little shaky. And I, I'm standing at the edge, looking down into the water, and trying to get up the courage in the face of my friends not to embarrass myself and go back down. And really, probably, if my friends are not there, I don't do this. Right? It's really just peer pressure. When you get right down to it, it wasn't courage at all. Just peer pressure. Maybe it was the fear of being embarrassed driving the decision to jump. But I can remember standing on the edge, standing there looking at the water and telling myself, everybody else has done this. There are children jumping off of here. Come on. You can do this. You can do this. You can do this. And finally, you know what you have to do at the end, right? You just have to stop talking and do it. I probably talk a little more than most, as you might be aware. And I can remember those steps when you finally do jump off the edge. And I'm not a step off the edge guy because there's another reason to not jump off cliffs. You could hurt yourself going down by going on the side of the thing, right? So I'm not a step off the edge guy. I'm a jump off the edge guy and pick my spot where I'm pretty sure it's deep enough that I'm not going to die of that either. You see, I have contingencies. And I can remember how that feels, that exhilaration as you're, as you're falling. It's that, that exhilaration of, am I going to die? 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 And then you hit the water. Usually where I am, it's cold. I'm not, I've never really done this in a really warm climate because when I'm on vacation, I'm on vacation. Not trying to kill myself in a foreign land. You hit the cold water and as your body begins to realize the temperature of the water, it squeezes the air out of you. And you hit the water with this sudden realization that all the oxygen is gone. You go under the water, and depending on how high you, high you were at the beginning, you might go quite a ways under the water. And then you begin to feel the need to get your air back in your lungs, and you start pulling for the top of the water. And as you burst through the water, you know what everybody does when they burst through the water at the top, right? They don't smile and wave at nobody. They just do what everybody else does. They go... <gasps> and you come to the, to the top... Realize the water was cold and this was a dumb idea and you swim to the shore and because of peer pressure, you do it again. <laughs> At least a couple of times. I know that the second time's easier than the first. Right? You know that to be true? The second time is easier than the first for a couple of reasons. For me, I survived the first one, you know, 
But there's also that exhilaration and that, that splashing into the cold water and coming up and gasping. for There's, a, there's, there's joy and exuberance and exhilaration and a, and a rush that comes to you that causes you to make that next jump. Right? There's that experiential joy that actually moves you past the fear the next time. Right? The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. As we jump into the middle of Nehemiah chapter 8, I need to give you a little bit of context. Nehemiah was a, was a leader. He was a, um, he was a cupbearer in the house of the king of Persia in Susa. Susa is a very cool place. It's a very nice place. He lives in the palace. He has a nice bed to sleep in. He has a nice home. He eats the best food. He hangs out with powerful people. You could say that though he is in captivity, he is actually in comfortable captivity. He's in pretty comfortable captivity. I think that's a state of a lot of people. A lot of us are in captivity to stuff that's happening in our lives, captivity to habits that we've been been dealing with for a long time. We're in captivity to a bad, bad expression of ourselves. A lot of us have experienced being in comfortable captivity. Nehemiah is in comfortable captivity. And he's just doing fine. He's cruising along. Everything's going fine. And somebody comes from his hometown and he says, hey, hey, how are things going back in Jerusalem? I mean, it's been a while. You know, it, it's been a long time since we, we started back, since people started building the temple there. And, you know, since the, the king sent back leaders and since Ezra went back, things, things have been, been, been progressing there. How are they doing? How are things going at home? And the word from home is not good. The word from home is... The walls are broken down. The gates of the city of Jerusalem have been burned. And the people are desperate. And the people are sad. And here he is, in his comfortable captivity, eating his fine food, sleeping in his nice bed, and a little bit of torture begins to move inside of him. At first, it's just a little disturbance, and it starts... To move like one of those things they show you, you know, out, out in the Atlantic, they, they, they predict what's headed for Florida by telling you there's a, a tropical disturbance somewhere near the equator between Florida and Africa. And you think, oh, a tropical disturbance, that doesn't sound so bad. You know, that's, you know, that's a neighbor banging on the door at night. That's a disturbance. A tropical disturbance. And then inside him, that disturbance begins to spin and it begins to, to turn into a, a, a bit of a tornado. And then it begins to continue to move and it, it moves forward into a hurricane. And when it becomes this, this hurricane force thing, it starts to wreak havoc in its path. Inside of him, this little disturbance starts to move its way up and, and it begins to rise until it becomes hurricane force inside of him. And he needs to do something about it. Israel is desperate. The walls are broken down. The the gates have been burned. What are they going to do? And God begins to say, I would like you to do something about this, Nehemiah. Nehemiah gets permission from the king to go back. He actually gets supplied by the king to restore and rebuild the walls and the gates at Jerusalem. Heads back, goes to work on that. We're going to talk a little bit about that in the next couple of weeks. But he does this whole job in 152 days, which is phenomenal all by itself. Where we are in the story, the walls have been built. They've dealt with all the trouble that's around them. 
And in chapter 8, we have the beginning of something different. They've gathered all the people now inside Jerusalem, inside the city that now has walls and gates. The people of Israel have come. They've gathered inside. And they begin to read the word of God. They begin to read the law of God to them. And we pick that up here in chapter 8, verse 8. They read the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. They actually had a platform built for him. And he's standing up on the platform. Ezra, Nehemiah, and some of the other leaders standing up on this platform. And Ezra's reading the book. And they have people dispersed throughout the crowd. And so he's reading along. And people in the crowd are going, you understand what he's talking about? You understand what's going on? Now understand that, that he's reading. He may be reading it in Hebrew. Most of these people speak Aramaic. Some of them speak both. But there needs to be some translation and some understanding, some commentary on what they're learning. Have you ever noticed that when you come out of your comfortable captivity, one of the things you're looking for is education? When you come out of that comfortable captivity, when you're released, when you kind of released from captivity in your life, one of the things you're looking for is information and education. You're trying to, to begin to understand what, the, what life looks like from this new perspective. What does life look like now if I, since I've changed, changed where I live and how I'm going about things, what does life look like in this new path I'm on? What does it look like? And so they get, they begin to explain to them what the law of God has to say. They read them the law and they explain to them what it has to say. Verse 9, then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructed the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Stop for a sec. This day when we finish the wall, this day is a celebration. This day when we've gathered you here to read the law of God is holy to the Lord. This is a special high, high day. Do not mourn or weep. Does this seem odd to you? The odd things in Scripture stand out to me. I don't know if they do that to you. They've, they've got lots of reason to celebrate. For the first time in 151 years... Jerusalem has a wall all the way around it without enemies waiting to get in. 151 years. Now the wall is finished. The gates are up. They've got, they've got, they've got security and safety inside the city. They can rebuild the, the houses inside. The temple is standing. The worship has been reestablished. They're reading the law of God. And these people are bawling. Does that seem at all weird to you? It seems to me this should be a day of celebration. It seems this, be a, this should be a day where everybody's thrilled. It's like when they laid the temple foundation. Half of them are crying, half of them are cheering. Nobody knows what's going on. These people begin to weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Ever been in the presence of a child when they see someone else crying? Have you? Then the presence of a child, when, when they see someone else crying, they, you're at a store, you're at the mall, you're at the church, or you're, you're somewhere with your kid. And, you know, kids, they're, they're known for their quiet little whispery voices, right? They never say anything loud, inappropriate in, in company, right? And there's this solemn, quiet moment wherever you are. You're sitting there in church. It's gotten really quiet. The, the, somebody's praying. Something's happening. And it's, everybody in church has just stopped. And it's gotten really quiet. And, and, and your child notices the person across the aisle has tears running down their face. Or they notice, in this case, the preacher's got tears running down his face. Whatever it is, and your child, in the moment of, of, of deep, quiet dignity, says, Mommy, why is he crying? Right? 
Right, right in the middle of it all, right? Because there's a cure. Why are these people crying? What's going on? Why are these people crying? What, what happened? Here's what I think happened. They've been reading the law. They've been reading the history of Israel. They've been reading what God has said to them. They've been reading about the Exodus. and They've been reading the stories that were told to them. They've been reading the things that God asks of them. And as the law has been read... The first five books of the scriptures, if they're being read, they have now discovered proof of a great opportunity lost. This nation, this group of people has been around for a thousand years. A thousand years since God brought them out of the Exodus. A thousand years, a millennium, the people of Israel have been along. They've been supposedly following after God for a thousand years and they blew it. Here in the book of the law and the story of the Exodus is a, is, is a picture from God of what they were called to do and to be and the opportunities that they missed are, are just heartbreaking. I was listening to a TED talk to, this week about uh, creative people. One of the great things I learned Creative people procrastinate. Woohoo! All those of you who procrastinate, God bless you. They said creative people kind of procrastinate. They don't procrastinate to the very end. You get less creative right at the end because you're just panicked at that point. But they kind of put things off a little bit because they're letting things boil, letting things, letting things stew a little bit in their head before they get everything done. They, the creative people are kind of wanting not to jump in too soon because they want to give this chance, thing a chance to mature a little bit before they jump in and start working. But it's said of creative people and other people, when you interview folks at the ends of their lives and you ask them what do they regret the most, you know what they regret the most every single time? Opportunities missed. And you know, they're not usually talking about the time they should have bought Apple stock. Back when they sold that Macintosh, I knew it was a great idea. What they're, what they're, what they're complaining about, what they're bothered by, is opportunities missed with kids and family and friends and loved ones. What people complain about at the end of their lives is opportunities lost to do something that mattered in the life of some other person, that mattered for the kingdom, that mattered for their kid, that mattered for their spouse. What people worry about and and are heartbroken over at the end of their lives are the opportunities lost. So why would these people cry? They've They've just learned that for a millennium, their people their family, their fathers and their forefathers have blown it. They've missed a massive opportunity to be God's own family for a thousand years. Secondly, in the law, there was proof that the destruction all around them could have been prevented. They're standing in a city that had to be rebuilt. They're the last group of returnees from an exile that could have been escaped. All of the destruction of Jerusalem, all the, all the, the, the picture of, of utter destruction. The, the, when, the, when Nebuchadnezzar finally sends his army there the third time, 
they rebel and they rebel and they rebel to the point where he destroys the walls of the city. He burns the gates of the city. He flattens the inside of the city. He destroys their temple. Everything about Jerusalem is to be wiped off the map. It's not to be a stronghold ever again. Why? Because they keep rebelling and rebelling and rebelling. And they think they're rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar. And they're really rebelling against God. All of the destruction around them could have been prevented. Could have been prevented. It's that feeling you have right after the noise and dust of the car accident settles down. When it was your fault. When you were driving too fast. When you, when you knew the mistake you were making. When you, when you knew <coughs> that you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. And all the screeching stops and all the noise stops. I was, I was 16 years old. I had just gotten my license. Literally that day, the picture on my license arrived. It was a Friday night. I drove to the church. We had a church program. I was coming home. I was following my friend. We were actually headed for his house first. Then I was going to my house. I could have gone straight home. I didn't. He was driving a small Toyota Corolla station wagon. About 1971 vintage. Not that old then. I was following him past his school, Logan High School. And as I was following the school, the the road made some little turns like that. And I was right behind him. I was too close, way too close. And my friend drifted to the outside edge of a left-hand curve and then made the quick turn around the corner. And as he disappeared from in front of me, I saw the side of the road and the road signs and the fence that was keeping the cows in over here. And the little Mazda RX-2 that I was driving, I went up on the curb. And when I did, I grabbed hold of the steering wheel extra tight. And when I grabbed hold and stiffened up, I put my foot down on the gas. That little RX-2 could go. And so that car took off. I caught, caught up with him really fast. I was taking out slow school zone signs and things as I went. One of those signs hit the front of the car, went up, went over and came down in the back window. My brother sitting next to me is just silent, which is highly unusual. I clipped the left-hand corner of that little Toyota Corolla, and he began to spin. And as he began to spin, I finally figured out what was going on, and I hit the brakes, and I began to stop. And as I'm stopping, his car is starting to turn over side like this down the road. This is before we all wore seatbelts. The car somehow manages to end up facing in the right direction, laying upside down on its roof in the median. As the noise went to a deafening silence, as the dust settles, I knew that everything that had just happened could have been prevented. It is miraculous that we all walked away from that thing unhurt. My friend crawled out of the window of his car and passed out in the median. I don't know if it was from the bump on his head or from the adrenaline rush that just came back down. 
I got to walk across the street, phone my dad and tell him to come and get me. Got to sit in the back of a police car while they hammered at me with questions about what was going on, whether I'd been drinking and whether we were racing. All of that could have been prevented. You, you've sat where I was sitting that night, right? Why are they weeping? Because the evidence of their mistakes and their family's mistakes and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers and their leaders for generations, for a millennium, the evidence was all around them. They heard what God had promised and they saw what had happened and they knew it could have been prevented. Here was proof of God's honesty and faithfulness toward them. God had told them, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, I give to you life and death, blessings and cursings. Choose life. And for a thousand years, they'd gone back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Until about 150 years ago, finally, they just had they just gotten so far away from God. They didn't even represent him anymore. And he said, okay, guys. We've, we've, we've gone for 850 years trying to get this right. The Babylonians are coming. Submit to this, and your city need not be destroyed. And they rebelled three more times, and the city was. And they saw how God had tried and 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 tried. For a thousand years, he'd been working with them. And so their hearts are breaking And here in front of them, with its walls closed and its temple rebuilt, was an opportunity to stand before the rest of the world as representatives of God. A huge task. A task they are completely incapable of fulfilling. That's why they're crying. Because everything here could have been prevented. Because the decision just needed to be made to follow after God. Over and over and over again, he had sent prophets. Over and over and over again, he had reached out to them. Over and over and over again, he'd rescued them when they had done something stupid. And now everything around them was just shouting at them. None of this needed to happen. None of this needed to happen. And it doesn't have to happen again. Just choose life. Choose blessing. Choose to follow me. Just choose me. And with the crowd weeping at what they've just heard, 
and what's all around them. Then they get the final word from Nehemiah. And he says, in the face of their tears, go your way, go home. Have a milkshake. Know what it says? Eat the fat, drink the sweet. Isn't that a milkshake? Go home. Have something fattening and sweet. And send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. So go home. Celebrate and share. Celebrate and share. Aren't celebrations always better when they're shared? When I go to an ice cream parlor, I rarely go alone. I believe in taking other people with me when I go to Leatherby's. I believe in sharing the celebration in the the, the milkshake or the banana split or the hot fudge sundae, the fat, sweet thing God told me to go and eat. <laughs> See, you didn't think I had a biblical reason for what I did, did you? He said, look, quit crying, go home, celebrate and share your celebration with somebody else who doesn't have what you have. Go home and celebrate. Do something you don't normally do. Eat the fat. Drink the sweet. Do what you don't, don't normally do in that celebration and share it with someone else. And then the, the line, that line that is the anchor that we, we so often forget in our life. We know it's true, but we just forget it. He said, don't sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Jesus said, I am coming and I am, I am following the cam- commands of my God and I love him and, I, and he loves me and I love you. And I am telling you these things so that your joy may be full. This is my commandment. Love one another. Jesus, who, who stood at the end of a, a vast cloud of witnesses demonstrating what it means to follow God and how it works when you're following God... For the joy set before him endured the cross. Because he knew you were coming. You were the joy set before him. You were actually providing joy to Jesus as he faced the cross. For the joy set before him he endured the cross. Because it's not broken heartedness that gives you strength. It's not discouragement that gives you strength. You know that's true. You know that it is when you are, are lifted up. We actually talk about this. We say, I was discouraged, I was unhappy, and my friend came, and they lifted my spirit. What do we mean? They buoyed me up. They gave me joy. They lifted me. The joy of the Lord is your strength. When you know you've blown it, and everything around you is a testimony to the fact that you've blown it, what is he saying? He's saying, look, it doesn't help for you to sit there and wallow in the knowledge of how, what a louse you are, what a, what a bum you are. Confess that, repent of that, which means go in a different direction. Go have something sweet and fattening. Have a friend over. Share it all with them, because it's the joy of the Lord that is your strength. 
The words are there, but how do we practice them? What do we do with them? How do we each apply these things to our lives? Because it's completely antithetical to our decisions. Right? We look at, our, at the things that are going on. You know what this, this text is saying? It's saying when, when you get out of the car and everybody's okay, when, when your friend stands up and passes out and you practically pass out because of fear, when, when the, the dust is settled and you didn't go to jail and your dad didn't actually kill you and you got home, have a milkshake, breathe, pray, bring a friend into this discussion because it's joy that gives you strength to face tomorrow. Those of you who have dealt with depression in your life know that it's hard to face tomorrow when you're depressed. It's hard to face tomorrow when your heart is breaking. It's hard to face tomorrow when you're struggling. And we're not talking about painting a fake smile on your face. We're talking about the joy of the Lord. Do you know what the joy of the Lord is at its core? At the, at the bottom? The anchor? It's this. The joy of the Lord is that He is a God of impossible possibilities. The joy of the Lord is that He is a God of impossible possibilities. They stood in a city that was ruined. They stood in a city that was just rubble everywhere they looked. There was a temple... There was a building, but it was just rubble everywhere they looked. And then, and then the walls were up, but there was nobody living in this thing. There were rats running around Jerusalem, but not much else. No one was even choosing to live inside the city. It was so far gone. But God is the God of impossible possibilities. They were set to a task that they could not manage. They were set to do something that was impossible for them to do to represent God on the planet. Better than their forefathers had. Better than anyone before them ever had. They were set to do something that they could not accomplish. But the joy of the Lord is that He is the God of impossible possibilities. Joel chapter 2. Probably written at this same time. When Joel looked out at the broken gates... He looked out at the destroyed walls. When he looked out at the temple, he looked out at the people and he said, you know what, guys? He said, our God, our God is a restorer of lost things. And he will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. 400 years later when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem it's a thriving metropolis and the temple at Jerusalem is one of the wonders of the Roman world when those 400 years pass and Israel has trying to find ways to follow after God people all across the Roman Empire know who the Jews are they don't all like them but they know about their God they don't all love them or follow him but they know about their God the message of who they are who they worship And what he stands for is clear because this generation takes seriously what it means to follow God with joy. Bye.
you. Before I have closing prayer, I'd like to invite you to participate in one of the discipleship classes, which are just simply Bible study classes. We have children's classes mainly down this hall, but also the youngest are in the very back. There are adult classes spread throughout the building, so you're welcome to participate. Let's just pray together now. Lord, be with us now as we participate in our classes. Be with us as we go home. Throughout this day, as we face a new week, we ask that you would be with us. Attend us in all that we do. May we learn to trust you. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.